0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Medical Matters, an Eden Center podcast featuring Dr. Sharon Galper Grossman, who will speak about topics relating to medicine and halacha. The Eden Center works to strengthen Jewish women and family life and promote the spiritual, emotional, physical, and sexual health of women and couples using the mikveh as a primary vehicle to attain those goals. I'm Hannah Evanchen, and I'm honored to be having this conversation with Dr. Galper Grossman. Sharon Galper Grossman is a radiation oncologist and former faculty member of Harvard Medical School, where she also obtained a master's in public health. She's a graduate of the Murotla Halacha Halakha program for women's advanced halakha learning at Matan HaSharon. She writes and lectures on women's health and halakha and teaches for Matan, Mahon Pua, and the Eden Center, where she's the director of community health programming. Today, we will be discussing women, heart disease, and nutrition and specifically how the food that we eat can impact our health. I'd like to share a few thoughts before we start this topic. Health and nutrition is an important topic for everyone. We'd like to especially focus on women because it's not always well known that women are at risk for heart disease, and to remind us as women with busy and complex lives that self-care and healthy lifestyle are both very important. We know that this topic is sensitive since health and especially weight can be an emotionally charged subject for many. There's no judgment in anything being presented here and also no intention to oversimplify or to imply that any two people are experiencing the exact same struggles or issues. Our goal today is to bring definitions, scientific and medical information that can be practical, helpful, and important and to raise awareness to aspects in which we can be more empowered to keep ourselves healthy. So hi, Sharon, it's nice to be back discussing important things together.
1: It's always, always wonderful to chat with you, Hannah.
0: So let's start at the beginning of this topic. And can you please just give us some basic information? What exactly is heart disease? What is a heart attack? To give us context for the things we're gonna be discussing.
1: So heart disease is any process that interferes with the structure and function of the heart. And the most common form of heart disease is coronary artery disease. A heart attack takes place when there's a blockage in the artery and the heart muscle in that area that receives supply from the artery doesn't doesn't get enough blood. And so after a certain amount of time, that part of the heart muscle will die. Uh, and the heart muscle doesn't have an, an ability to regenerate. So once that area, once that area dies, it, it, can't, it can't restore itself. And Sharon, how common is heart disease? So worldwide, heart disease accounts for about one in three deaths. Uh, and women are more likely to die after a heart attack than men. About 40% of women around the world will die of heart disease. And, and they're not aware of this. I think we all walk around worrying that we're going to get breast cancer and we don't think that perhaps we're going to have a heart attack or heart disease, which can include stroke and diseases of the blood vessels. Uh, so it's really, it's really a huge public health pr- crisis. Uh, it's a huge public health problem, especially for women. Heart disease is very different in women than in men. Uh, when men may be more likely to have heart attacks, but women are more likely to die of a heart attack if they have one. The risk factors are slightly different than women. Uh, The symptoms are slightly different in women. The treatments are are different in women. The biology may be different in women. Uh, When women have symptoms, they're they're, they're less likely to be taken seriously by the medical establishment. And they're less likely to have tests done to evaluate their symptoms. And they're def- less likely to have interventions, revascularization procedures that open up the artery than men. So it's, it's a huge problem for women. And I think, and that's why it's so important that Eden, the EDEN Center is addressing this and trying and working to increase awareness.
0: Yeah. When you say that women are more likely to die of a heart attack, Did I understand correctly that you're saying it's because women are not aware that that's what's happening to them and that even in the medical world, it's less likely to be diagnosed and treated properly as a heart attack or heart disease in women?
1: So there there are several factors. Uh, One of them is delay in seeking treatment. Women tend to show up in the hospital uh, or seek medical attention a lot longer after their symptoms started than men. Um, and, and there are gender differences. There are certain, there are certain physician biases. Uh, physicians are less likely to think of a heart or to, to worry about a heart attack when a woman presents with symptoms. And part of that is because uh, we tend to think men, only men get heart attacks. And part of that is because the symptoms are more subtle in women. Uh, and then there are other factors that we're not even aware of that can help, that, that may contribute to this problem. So when we talk about risk factors for heart disease, there are uh, risk factors that are modifiable that we can change, and then there are the ones that we can't change. Uh, and so, the risk factors that are that are considered modifiable that we can that we really can make a, make a difference, and that we really can address are high blood pressure, so a blood pressure greater than 140 over 90, high cholesterol, smoking, uh, obesity sedentary lifestyle and um, elevated elevated lipids, high cholesterol. And then there are some risk factors that are unique to women. Uh, so pregnancy, for example, is a nine month stress test for the body. And so preeclampsia, women who have elevated blood pressure during pregnancy are at higher risk of having a heart attack. Gestational diabetes, uh, which is diabetes that develops during pregnancy, puts a woman at higher risk of heart attack. Polycystic ovarian disease can put her at higher risk. Uh, and so it's important for a woman who may have experienced gestational diabetes to, to, to try to work on her uh, cardiovascular risk, try to work to reduce it after the baby's born, after things calm down a bit, uh, might be the time to figure out how to reduce the risk by addressing her diet, by introducing exercise to, to really make changes that will impact her for the rest of her lives. And then less rest of her life. And then there are some, then there are risk factors that are psychosocial that put us at risk as women. Uh, intimate partner violence can increase the risk of heart disease, can increase the risk of stroke, and then, there, then there's a, that really something we're only beginning to now understand, especially after COVID, which is loneliness and isolation that can increase the risk of heart attack, increase the risk of stroke, and really illustrate to us the incredible connection between the body and the mind. But the good news is that much of heart disease is preventable by living a heart a healthy lifestyle, a heart healthy lifestyle, and taking positive steps to to change our behaviors. I think that's
0: really interesting what you just said about the fact that there are risk factors that we can change and risk factors that we can't change. And I think in general, it's a really important uh, distinction to remember when we discuss health and well-being and our lifestyles is that we're People are going to vary from person to person, and and people have all sorts of factors that they don't have control over or that they have limited control over, and then we all have elements of our lifestyle that we have more control over, and so it's important to remember that to do our research and gain our information and say, okay, what what are the things that I can impact? What are the things that I can change? Um, and I And it's interesting that you mentioned pregnancy and saying that even certain things in our lifestyles that might be positive, wonderful things can bring with them other risks. And uh, like we said in the beginning, that if there's no judgment in anything. It's just a matter of being informed and saying, okay, if this is my lifestyle or this is my stage of life or my age, or these are my risk factors, and then what can I do within that context? What what information can I have that can, that I can uh, um, improve my situation and improve my My medical, my medical situation. Um, And yeah, I think that the power of seeing, especially during COVID, but I think in general, um, how much our mental, emotional state affects our physical health um, is something that maybe we don't give enough attention to and that we tend to sort of sideline. But I think it's, I I think it's, uh, people are becoming more and more aware of that. And I think it's a, a step in a,
1: in a good direction. So I, I agree with you, Han, I just wanted to echo uh, what you said about, you know, empowering us to make changes and the, and the importance of making changes in our lives. I've actually heard women say, oh, you know, I, I'm 50 years old, I'm 60 years old, what does it matter what I do? Uh, my, my body is my body and, and it's not going to make a difference. And the truth is that um, there have been medical studies that show that positive changes uh, in in, uh, diet, and exercise, even later in life, can have a profound impact on the risk of heart disease and our overall overall life expectancy. So it's not too late, uh, regardless of your age. Uh, for our listeners who are younger, you have the opportunity to, to make changes now that, that you know, can last for the rest of your lives. But for our older listeners or somewhat older listeners, it's never too late.
0: You know, sometimes people say it doesn't matter what age you are, you just want to be young at heart. So I guess this time we mean it both literally and figuratively. Um, so what you're saying is that taking our health in our own hands which we're going to get into later in the podcast in terms of specifics So, what does that mean and what are the things we should be aware of. But really, you can always take a step in the right direction. It's never too late. And it's always uh, a positive thing to, to be proactive in terms of our lifestyle and our health. Um, there are
1: medical benefits. There are, it's yeah. never too late medically. Medically. Medi- um, there are a lot of other in, in a lot of other areas, too, but certainly there's a medical benefit uh, even even later in life.
0: That's really important. That's really important. Um, if uh, going back to the actual uh, risk of heart attack, can you explain? You said a lot of women are not aware that they might be having heart attack. We're just not trained to notice the signs. What are the signs of a heart attack?
1: So. Um, Typically, you know, everyone has this image from the movies of the man clutching his chest and saying, I feel like an elephant, I feel pressure, I feel like an elephant is sitting on my chest. Um, And it doesn't always, it doesn't always present that way. So, you know, it may, one may experience discomfort or tingling in the arms, the back, the neck, the shoulder, the jaw, there may be chest pain, there may be shortness of breath. For women, though, it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily come about this way. Always. Woman might experience dizziness. She might be having heartburn symptoms. She might have cold sweats. She may be incredibly tired, um, but tired in like an unexplainable way. Not. Yeah, I stayed up till one in the morning last night. I'm really tired, but tired. I I just don't know why. Um, Nausea or vomiting. And and so. You know, if someone experiences these symptoms, they should call 911 immediately. Uh, In Israel, it's 101 because um, fast action saves lives. And even if uh, and they shouldn't drive themselves to the hospital because they might have uh, an abnormal heart rhythm that could be quite dangerous if they were driving or they shouldn't have a friend drive them. They should call for professional, I should call an emergency medical personnel who can start treatment even in the ambulance. And because time is of the essence, uh, as, as I explained earlier, we have a small narrow window when, uh, when the damage it's, that might be occurring to the heart can be reversed. And after that, it's too late. Uh, and so don't sit at home if you're having symptoms, contact someone and, and take steps. Uh, and just to, just to illustrate the point, I'd actually like to share a personal story that, um, that made the difference between life, life and death. So 15 years ago, my father uh, and mother and grandmother and brother were on the way to my sister's college graduation. My father's a cardiologist. So he, he's, quite, uh, he's quite familiar with the symptoms of a heart attack. But they were driving to the graduation and in the, in the car, my father told my brother to turn the car around and drive to the hospital. He was experiencing chest pain. Uh, And they did. And my bubby sitting in the in the back of the car happened to have aspirin in her pocketbook and she gave him an aspirin to swallow. It'll make him feel it'll help him. She knew how she knew. I don't know. And my brother drove down the streets of Boston, one way streets in the wrong direction, went on the sidewalk, pulled up to the front door of the hospital uh, luckily, there was valet parking, so he whisked my father out, brought him into the emergency room, where they asked him his name, and so he doesn't he didn't answer, because he suddenly became unconscious, they wheeled him back, he had, he had a cardiac arrest, they resuscitated him uh, 11 times, including a couple times in the elevator, going down to the cardiac cath lab where they opened up his vessel. And it's, it's truly a miracle. Um, today he, 15 years later, he is healthy. Uh, he has no evidence of this event on any of his medical tests. His echocardiogram is normal. His EKG is normal. And truly it has to be, I mean, obviously there's Yad Hashem in this and but also the fact that the medical health was right there and this happened in the hospital and not at home, not on the road. Uh, So time is of the essence and, and it's okay. It's okay to, to, to not be certain if you're having a heart attack, it's okay to go to the hospital anyway, and let the medical professionals decide whether it's real or it's not real. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about. And so if there's any one message that we can give our listeners today, it's, it's if you're having symptoms, go, go and have them checked out. Don't sit at home with your heart attack because those minutes are the difference between life and death.
0: Wow. That's a really, really powerful and extremely moving story. Um, and really does emphasize the point. And I know that there are people who tend to say, oh, I'll be fine. I don't want to be an imposition. It could be men or women. Uh, you know, it, it'll inconvenience everybody. And you're saying err on the side of caution. It also doesn't look like it looks like in the movies and TV. So don't look for that. And um, And that time is really of the essence. So err on the side of caution and get something checked out. And, you know, don't worry about the inconvenience or a false alarm. If you think it could be something, it's better to... Better to be wrong and have it checked out than to miss something really important. Well, Sharon, if we're hoping to be in a situation of uh, avoiding God forbid somebody having a heart attack, what can we do to control the risk factors for heart disease?
1: So as I mentioned, there are several risk factors that are, that are modifiable that we have, that we have the power to address. We have the power to control. And one of them is obesity. Uh, the, obesity is actually defined as taking in more than our body can possibly consume. Now, there are several factors which contribute to obesity. Uh, some of them we have no control over, like genetics, but some of them we do have control over, uh, such as what we eat, and how much we consume, how much we burn uh, by exercising. And so today I'd like to focus on the impact of obesity and diet and a little bit exercise on, on our risks of heart disease and what we can do and what perhaps halacha would require us to do to control these risks. So when we talk about health, we generally speak in terms, we measure obesity and we and we talk about obesity through a measure called body mass index, which takes your height and weight and tries to predict what your overall level of health is. And so a BMI below 24.9 is considered normal. Above that, between 25 and 29.9 is considered overweight, between 30 and 34.9 obese, and 35 and above is considered extremely obese. Now, body mass index is really just a quick and crude way of evaluating health in general because it doesn't account for what we eat. It doesn't account for things that can affect our health like smoking or exercise or muscle mass. So for example, you could have an athlete with a very high body mass index who is quite healthy uh, but his body mass index is higher because it's all muscle. And it also doesn't account for where on our body the fat accumulates, which is, which is also important in terms of overall level of health.
0: I see. So just to clarify, are you saying that obesity is a term based on BMI, based on body mass index, but that body mass index does have its limitations as a tool? So I'm understanding that a person with a high BMI may have healthy habits, And vice versa, somebody could actually have a low BMI, but not have such healthy habits of eating or exercise. So in other words, BMI and the terminology of obesity is a medical tool and an indicator, but
1: doesn't necessarily tell the whole story? That's correct. Um, Unfortunately though, we really talk, when we talk about obesity, all the research that, that we, well, most of the research that we have is based on BMI. And so today, just to try to understand what the impact of obesity is on our health, for the sake of, of uh, scientific rigor, I, I think we need to talk about obesity in the context of BMI. And so today I'd like to focus, uh, if with your permission, Khana, on the issues of nutrition and healthy and versus unhealthy eating habits that can actually contribute to obesity. So obesity is, is a huge problem worldwide. Uh, It's about one in three people worldwide adults are considered overweight or obese and two out of three adults in the United States, 20% of children are obese. Obesity is more prevalent in women and obesity actually has quintupled. In 1976, 6% of the US population qualified as obese, and today it's 32%, so a five times increase. Obesity increases the risk of heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, diabetes, musculoskeletal disorders, cancer, and the overall risk of death, and the impact of obesity on heart disease and cancer is much greater in women than men. So a woman, for example, uh, just to talk about cancer because I'm an oncologist, in women, obesity is responsible for 38,000 extra deaths from cancer each year. Sorry, 38,000 extra cases of cancer in men each year and 75,000 extra cases of cancer in women each year. So it has a much greater impact on a woman's risk than on a man's risk. Obesity can also cause emotional and psychological suffering. Okay, now that
0: we've understood obesity in its medical context and the impact that it can have on our health overall, and we've heard how significant of an issue it has become in the Western world in general, I'd like to ask you more specifically about the Jewish community. What kind of patterns do we see there?
1: So unfortunately, Hannah, it's a problem even in the Orthodox world. A study from West Rogers Park, a suburb of Chicago, which is predominantly 90% of people involved are Orthodox, found really high rates of overweight and obesity, 56% of the population was either overweight or obese. And the rate of obesity was even higher than the general population. Most of the people who were considered overweight or obese weren't aware of it. Their doctors hadn't told them. And so they weren't, they're not likely to change their behaviors because they don't realize that there's a problem. Among those who, did know, who, who were aware, uh, those who were aware really were trying to make changes, make an effort to, to address obesity. But what was most shocking from this study and really most upsetting was that the rate of obesity in children was twice as high than in the general population, especially in young girls. Uh, And parents, the parents of these children weren't aware that they had a problem and their doctors hadn't told them that there was a problem. So unfortunately the Orthodox community is not immune to obesity. It, It is a big problem and it may even be more of a problem for us than the rest of the world. Well, if you say
0: that it's so prevalent in the Orthodox community, is that, um, is that caused by genetics or is that caused by
1: lifestyle? In the early 20th century, the Jews were actually referred to as a diabetic race. This was part of the whole race-based medicine movement and eugenics. I'd like to though take an honest look today at some of the cultural and lifestyle habits in the Orthodox world that may be contributing to these health issues? First of all, Baruch Hashem, we have a, a, uh, an abundance of kosher food products. There's really, there's so much today that we can buy that's kosher. And then of course we have some challenges to squeezing in exercise. Um, men, men work and when they're not learning there's pressure, sorry, men work and when they're not learning there's pressure to learn Torah. And so that doesn't leave a lot of time for exercise. Women work and they're taking and we're juggling our kids and we try to also make time to learn Torah. And that also doesn't leave us time to exercise. Our kids go to school and have longer school days. They have a dual curriculum uh, in the United States. They get out of school later than their non-religious peers. And so that doesn't leave time to exercise. And if you want to participate in, in, um, in competitive sports, those often meet on Shabbat. So they can't participate for that, uh, and then of course food is such an integral part of our religious and cultural lives. We have we have chagim. And which are opportunities where where we eat, and we have special foods for Hagim and we have Baruch Hashem so many smachot uh, where food plays such a central role. We have weddings where where one can end up eating at a wedding more than one was required, one could have, one should have eaten during the course of a day. And then of course we have Shabbat, uh, which comes around once a week, and that is Shabbat is really, approximately. <laughs> But Shabbat's really what what distinguishes us uh, from the rest of the world when it comes to eating. And and that is because once a week, we are required to eat three meals uh, with challah, which is so delicious, and we often eat way more than, um, than we should. And we're instructed to actually, the Rambam tells us in Hilchot Shabbat, Perak Lamed Halacha that one should prepare rich food and fragrant beverages for the Shabbat as much as he can afford. The more one prepares, the more he prays he deserves. Shabbos, we have less physical activity. It's, it's uh, prohibited to exercise to the point of sweating. And then, of course, we take a nap in the middle of the day. But I guess the question is really, how much more do we eat on Shabbos? Right. And so, yeah. and so, uh, I found something a, a fascinating article which actually calculated what one typically eats on Shabbat and broke down by meal, by calories, uh, what one consumes, and I found it shocking to see what. A normal looking Shabbat adds up to. Hmm. So, you know, Friday night dinner uh, was roast chicken, a a piece of breast with skin on, a little challah, some brisket, some salad, grape juice, matzo ball soup, green bean salad, chocolate cake, chocolate chip cookie. Suddenly, according to this estimate, 1,867 calories. Shabbat That's a full morning. day's calorie
0: in one meal. That,
1: that that really is. But nothing, the portions that, that were recorded in this article, uh, the the foods that were eaten, none of it seemed outrageous. It's what I typically, what all of us typically serve for a, a Shabbat meal. And then well, Shabbat we also morning.
0: really uh, emphasize how wonderful it is to cook special things, and on Shabbat we tend to also eat in social environments. And I think when people are eating socially, we tend to eat more than we might if we were eating uh, alone. And it's, but we think of it, you know, the stories of Yosef Mokir Shabbat. And it's, and it's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing to be preparing these special and, and amazing foods for Shabbat. But you're bringing it to our awareness of uh, what price our bodies might be paying. So what happens on Shabbat Day?
1: So Shabbat Day, uh, you go to Kiddush and you have a chocolate chip cookie, a little a bowl of cholans, maybe a piece of herring, uh, and a potato kugel, and suddenly, and it may add a few other things, suddenly that comes out to 1,068 calories, and that doesn't even include the cup of coffee and piece of cake you may have had before shul. And then it's Shabbos lunch. You have a piece of, two pieces of challah, little cholans, the chicken leg, lots of salads because you're being healthy, so strawberry spinach salad, uh, some salmon, quinoa, desserts to vanilla ice cream and a portion of chocolate cake. And lo and behold, you've had two thousand three hundred and sixty calories just for Shabbat lunch. And then it's Shala Shudda's time. Who has who's even hungry for that? Right. But you have to wash. So you take a challah and you smear a little tuna salad on it and a little egg salad. And suddenly, by the time Shabbat is over, and you're not going to believe this number, you've eaten 6,130 calories. Wow. And a wow. daily allowance is about 2,000 calories per day, uh, maybe a little bit less for women. So three times the daily allowance of calories just on Shabbat. And that doesn't wow. include the malava malka you might go to as well. That's really quite
0: eye-opening, and especially when we think of it as a standard weekly occurrence, which makes it more of a habit than an exception. Granted, I do think there's a lot of positive nurturing that family and community does through food, through meals. I think that the social element that many of us have in our Shabbat environment, especially around our meals, is a wonderful aspect of community and of sharing. And that there's really a value in serving special things on Shabbat, saving our best clothing and our special foods for Shabbat. And together with all that, once we've looked at it from this perspective that you've shared with us, Sharon, we have the opportunity to be more mindful about what exactly we choose to serve or to eat. Perhaps we do need to think about how intentional we are being or not being in terms of our health and nutrition, even on Shabbat and holidays and smachot.
1: So, Hannah, actually, um, I've heard heard people say, you know, calories don't count on Shabbat. And the question is, do they actually count? Um, Scientifically, I can't imagine that Neshama Yatera could actually consume 6,130 calories over Shabbat. (laughs) But the truth is that that medically, there have been studies that uh, suggest that our our overeating on Shabbat might actually contribute to obesity in the Jewish world.
0: That's really interesting. And just as we said in the beginning, our goal is to encourage and to empower people. Community, celebration, even breaking our own rules on occasion can all be wonderful things. And it's also important to raise our own awareness about patterns and habits that we may have formed as individuals or as a community that may be contributing to health risks over time.
1: Well, I think that um, that that one one important um, thing that I hope comes out of our our conversation today is that we start to think as a community about where we can take steps to um, to. Modify our food intake to uh, eat more healthfully, more mindfully, and t- take steps that begin in the home and that extend throughout our communities.
0: That's a really important thought. I'm excited for us to get to that later in the podcast. So let's go over to the halachic side of things now. Um, how does halacha approach the concept of overconsumption of food and consumption of unhealthy food?
1: So um the Ramban uh, on his commentary on Kdoshim Tiyu actually talks about gluttonous eating. And he explains that without Kdoshim Tiyu, we would it would be permissible to guzzle uh, to guzzle wine and to be gluttonous of meat. Uh, but shim Tiyu for, prevents us, it prohibits us from being nabal shuta tatarah, disgustingly inappropriate within the bounds of halacha, it prohibits us from being defiled from the multitude of coarse food. Uh, so the, Rambam, the Ramban prohibits eating gluttonously, uh, but he doesn't prohibit eating a little bit more. He doesn't prohibit eating an extra piece of cake and a kiddish, and he doesn't prohibit eating unhealthy food. The Rambam in the fourth chapter of Hilchot Deo actually dedicates the chapter to nutritional advice. And he teaches that one should not eat unless hungry. He calls overeating a poison to the body uh, that is the main source of all illness. And he explains that overeating, even of healthful foods is dangerous or is is, uh, the source of illness. But he doesn't prohibit unhealthy eating; uh, he he just recommends against it. And you can contrast his language in Hilchot De'er with the, with the language he uses in Hilchot Rozeach Shmirat HaNefesh, where he actually prohibits dangerous behaviors. Anyone who engages in dangerous behavior uh, violates a prohibition and uh, should be lashed for his disobedience. And so. The question is, why does the Rambam not prohibit unhealthy eating? He doesn't think it's good, but why does he not prohibit it? Is it because uh, he really believes that there is no prohibition, or is it because there wasn't enough medical evidence at the time to prohibit it? And should there be more medical evidence available regarding the dangers of unhealthy eating, he might have prohibited it. So we don't know. Uh, and, and, and that is really an open-ended, that's the million dollar question.
0: Well, it's my understanding that we have an obligation to take care of our bodies. So does, um, unhealthy eating fall into that category halachically?
1: So you're right, uh, Hannah, and something we've talked about on uh, previous podcasts, and I'm sure we'll talk about in future ones, which is that halacha obligates us to, uh, care for our health. Which includes prevention of disease, and there are many there are many sources of that obligation. Beni raki uh, Rakishamer, guard your health. We have the mitzvah of the Ma'akeh, uh, which uh, constructing a parapet. Which uh, the Rambam extends to removing all danger in our midst. We have the prohibition against wastefulness and harming, and allowing harm to come to our body would be considered wasteful. The prohibition against wounding oneself oneself the haibahem and you should the were given to live by and not to die by the uh, the obligation to restore lost property which post include to uh, extend to include restoring health and the reason for this is because god gave us our our, our bodies to worship him and the baraha gola suggests that someone who places himself in danger is rejecting the will of his creator, it's like he desires neither God's service or his reward. And he says there's no greater dishonor and impudence than this. And to what extent do we have to protect ourselves from danger? The Rama, in his gloss in the Shulchan Aruch, says that we need to be even more careful with danger than with prohibitions. And we need to worry about possible dangers, more so than possible prohibitions. And we can't rely on a miracle. So just with, with that background, it, it, it would... It would, all, it would seem that halacha would require us to eat healthy, to avoid fatty foods, to not eat to excess, uh, to, to protect our health. But we've also talked about another halacha concept, uh, which is Shomer P'tayim Hashem, that God watches over the simple, that halacha allows for some level of risk in our lives Um it allows us to engage in certain potentially dangerous behaviors that society has demonstrated a willingness to accept. And so the question is, how, how does halacha balance between, on the one hand, this obligation to promote our health uh, and to protect our health and to prevent disease with Shomer p'tim Hashem, which allows us to engage in some risk?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if I understand the concept of Shomer P'tayim Hashem correctly... It's It's there. It's, there's a difference between behaviors that are considered to be irresponsible behaviors versus things that are socially accepted as reasonable, but do bring along with them some risks. Perhaps a good example might be the difference between walking into a street without looking to see if cars are coming, which I think would be an irresponsible thing to do, versus driving in a car, which we do and is socially acceptable thing to do, but we all know that it brings along some risks. Um, is that a, a, a correct understanding?
1: So you're right. There are limits to Shomer Patim Hashem. Shomer Patim Hashem doesn't mean if everyone's jumping off the roof, uh, you can jump in. And so post have uh, established some parameters. Uh, so, for example... Uh, Binyan Sion uh, believes that it cannot apply where the risk of long-term danger is more than 50%. It only applies to a mitzvah or a pressing matter. It can't apply to a recreational activity. Khatam uh, Sofer says it can't apply when the danger is known. Uh, the Achiezer says it doesn't apply when the risk it only, it only applies when the risk is far removed and occurs in the minority of minority of cases. So if everyone's jumping off the roof they're, you know, all of them are probably gonna break their neck. Uh, Ravavadja says it doesn't apply when the danger is likely or certain. And the Avne Nezer actually adds an, a, another layer, which is it doesn't apply when the doctor says the action will endanger life. So really adding weight to medical opinion. And the question is, how does, you know, how, how, how does halacha balance on the one hand between the obligation to promote your health and shamir p'tim Hashem, uh, when it comes to unhealthy eating and which of these, which of these principles will ultimately prevail. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. That's an interesting, an interesting way of looking at it. Um, are there other examples in the halacha that could be comparable to this dilemma?
1: So in 1981, Rav Moshe Feinstein wrote a tshuva where he permitted cigarette smoking uh, because he believed that Shomer Fatim Hashem applied. And he actually compares cigarette smoking to unhealthy eating. Uh, He he gives us a framework now to try to assess how halacha might view unhealthy eating. He says that, that it's clear that uh, smoking is permitted in halacha because ripetim, Hashem applies when there is a possible danger that people are not careful about, like eating unhealthy food. Lots of people eat fatty food or spicy food and nothing happens to them. Only a small number of people are harmed. And he cites the Rambam in his language in Hilchot Deut, uh, and points out that the Rambam was very careful not to prohibit unhealthy eating, uh, just to recommend against it. And so he does say in the end that um, it's not ra'oi, it's not appropriate for uh, people to smoke, uh, certainly a ben Torah, because there's no benefit to smoking, but it's not prohibited. And this has served as uh, the justification, the basis for many in the religious world to justify smoking. However, uh, with time as more medical data became available, more and more post uh began to prohibit smoking. And so the Titzel Eliezer Rav Eliezer Waldenberg in 1981 also wrote a tshuva, but he prohibited smoking and said, Shomer Ptima Hashem can't apply because it only applies where we, where we're not aware of the danger or where lots of people engage in this activity and nothing bad happens to them. And so it can't apply. Shemirat can't apply to cigarettes because there is there are so many studies documenting the dangers of these products. It can't apply because governments have required tobacco companies to place warning labels on the um, cigarette boxes. It can't apply because the Surgeon General reported that 100,000 deaths each year occur in the United States due to smoking, and the number one cause of death of cancer is smoking to claim Shemir Pratim Hashem applies to smoking would be absurd. More and more medical data accumulated and then in 1998 of Ephraim Greenblatt, uh, author of copious chuvot in his um, in his book Rivavot Ephraim, actually wrote that smoking is suicide that to claim Shomer P'Tim Hashem will protect you from the dangers of smoking is like lying down in the middle of the highway with oncoming traffic and crying out Shomer P'Tim Hashem, Hashem will protect me from smoking. And then the final sign that Shomer P'Tim Hashem can't apply to cigarette smoking is the fact that um, many many uh, Bacharim from Yeshivot or there are some Bacharim from Yeshivot who will go to bars Uh, And in those bars, smoking is prohibited, even though alcohol, which has dangers, uh, is permitted. And so those bans on smoking are, are proof of principle, are the final proof that. Shomer P'tim Hashem can't apply to cigarettes. And so more data accumulated and there was more uh, more scientific information regarding the dangers of smoking. And in 2006, the Rabbinical Council of America issued a statement prohibiting smoking. And in that statement, they address Rav Moshe's tshuva uh, and say that the tshuva Uh, that that it's very, that it it is clear that based on all of the compelling information we have regarding the dangers of smoking, that Rav Moshe would have forbidden smoking today, Uh, and this is the position of Rav David Feinstein, Rav Moshe's son, as well as Rav Moshe's son-in-law, Rav Moshe Tendler, uh, with whom I had the schut to have, personally have conversations, where he explained that in Rav Moshe's time, the tobacco companies uh, had deceived us, had, had hidden from us the dangers of their products, and and people weren't aware, but that today, now that we know, it's unquestionable that Rav Moshe would have forbidden smoking. And so if Rav Moshe uh, could have changed his position on smoking based on emerging medical data, then it's quite, uh, quite possible that he might rule differently regarding the dangers of unhealthy eating, the dangers of eating fatty foods based on the data that we have today showing the dangers of this behavior. And it's also possible that the Rambam would rule differently regarding unhealthy eating. He might based on what we know today it's quite possible he would prohibit unhealthy eating and and rule that someone who who eats unhealthy food is guilty of makot.
0: So based on the current halachic perspective on smoking which prohibits it and the parallel to unhealthy eating, would you say that obesity caused by unhealthy eating and unhealthy habits is comparable
1: to smoking medically and halakhically? Surprisingly, it's not just as bad as smoking. It's actually worse than smoking. Um, it it sm- Obesity increases the risk of chronic diseases by 67% and smoking at a healthy weight increases the risk by 25%. Heavy drinking at a healthy weight uh, increases the risk by 12%. So yes, it's bad, it's worse, and it's a lot worse. In fact, for many years, uh, smoking was more deaths could be attributable to smoking than to obesity. But in many areas, smoking rates have declined. And in those areas, the number of deaths attributable to obesity now far exceeds the number of deaths attributable to smoking. The real question is, yes, so we know obesity is bad uh, and we know that it's that it's uh, worse than smoking, but maybe, maybe Shomer Pateem can apply to obesity. After all, many people are obese. In the United States, 42% of the population. The response to that would, would be something that Dr. Fred Rosner said in the 1980s, uh, regarding cigarette smoking, the fact that so many Jewish people smoke is no justification for this dangerous and life threatening practice. And so, uh, just to go back to some of the parameters that we talked about earlier, and the limitations to Shomer P'teym HaShem, and the, uh, the position of postkim when this, this principle may not apply, uh, we said that it doesn't apply if the long-term risks are more than 50%. It doesn't apply when the danger is known. It only applies when the danger is in the minority 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 of cases. It doesn't apply when doctors say the behavior will endanger life. And so, can, can do those? Can we make those statements about obesity? Can we say that the dangers don't occur? They only occur in a minority of minority of cases. Well, if we look at body mass index someone with a uh, who's overweight has twice the risk of diabetes compared to someone who's a healthy weight. Someone who's obese has a five times higher risk of diabetes compared to someone in a healthy weight. Someone extremely obese has a nine times risk. And someone severely obese has a 12 times risk. And someone who is severely obese has a 50% higher risk of sudden death compared to someone who's at a healthy rate. These these risks are very high. Uh, Some of them are comparable to the risks of smoking cited by the Rabbinical Council of America in their article where they prohibit um, cigarette smoking. And uh, and these risks may exceed that 50% risk of the binyan sion. That above which Shemir Patim Hashem can't apply. So, it, it just just uh, based on based on the medical information we have, it would seem that Shemir Patim Hashem may not apply to this situation.
0: Um, so, going back to the comparison with smoking, is is uh, comparing between smoking and unhealthy eating? Is that a good comparison? Uh, can you extrapolate from the halachic opinions about smoking to unhealthy eating?
1: So, uh, extrapolating from smoking to obesity, uh, halachically from smoking to obesity, is is problematic because it's it's challenging and it has some limitations because um, it's easy it's easy to cut out smoking. It's not easy, but you can eliminate probably cigarettes. not for someone who smokes. No, not at all. <laughs> but you can eliminate one can avoid cigarettes, but you can't avoid food. Food is an essential part of our lives. Uh, and, and, and you could say all cigarettes are us but you can't say all food is us uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, uh, one extreme uh, to w- on one extreme we have, you know, eating unhealthy food on the other extreme we have anorexia which is also which we don't want which which is which is a huge problem and and that's something that we have to be very careful about and so it's very difficult to say that one bite of food is necessary and the the next bite of food is prohibited and also there's there's um another uh limitation and that is that Um, and genetics plays a major role in obesity. And um, we really have no control over the genetic component in all of this. So perhaps the halakhically pure comparison is between smoking and behaviors that lead to obesity. uh, So that someone who eats healthfully uh, and exercises, but is nevertheless obese, has not violated any prohibitions. Whereas someone who is eating to excess and eating unhealthy foods uh, potentially would violate prohibitions regardless of their weight.
0: That's an interesting and significant distinction. We mentioned this at the beginning when we introduced the medical terminology of obesity, that it's a term with limitations since it doesn't always tell the whole story. There are modifiable behaviors which affect health such as exercise or smoking, that are not reflected accurately in the BMI indicator. Additionally, there's the factor of genetics, which would be a great example of a non-modifiable factor. We are trying to focus today mostly on things that people can change and take charge of in their lifestyle and to be intentional about. So if we focus on our habits rather than our BMI, we're focusing on things that we have control over.
1: And I think that you know because of these limitations, of extrapolating from smoking to unhealthy eating, uh, from smoking to obesity, there's been a movement in the halakhic world actually to focus on trans fats and to uh, say that trans fats are a better analogy uh, with smoking. Trans fats are um, formed from an industrial process that adds hydrogen to vegetable oil. It increases the shelf life of oil and so it's often added to it's often used for deep frying because uh the restaurants don't need or the people who are deep frying don't need to change the oil as often so it's found in commercial baked goods cakes cookies pies microwave popcorn frozen pizza in fried foods like french fries and schnitzel and donuts And actually, it it can have a profound impact on our health. Every 2% increase in trans fat increases the risk of heart disease by 23%. Uh, And in 2003, the FDA required all manufacturers to list the the amount of trans fats in, in their products. And then in 2015, the FDA banned trans fats. Uh, and this went into effect in 2018. So effectively, that ban eliminated 75% of trans fats from the American diet, which leaves another 25% uh, that is still available from foods that we eat in a restaurant uh, or or outside the home, and that 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 25%. Is responsible for 20,000 heart attacks each year in the United States and 7,000 deaths. Many areas have actually banned, outright banned trans fats. So New York City banned trans fats, Denmark banned trans fats, and the areas that have banned trans fats, the um, the rate of heart attacks has decreased. So, for example, in New York City, areas in New York that have banned trans fats. There are six percent fewer heart attacks and strokes in Denmark. The this policy of banning trans fats actually pre- prevented fourteen deaths uh, for every hundred thousand people. So really, it can have a profound impact on uh, on on our survival. And so, uh, Dr. Uh, a recent halachic article has suggested that. Uh, that the new trans, the, the new halachic equivalent of um, of uh, smoking are trans fats. Why? Well, because Shomer P'tim Hashem can't apply anymore to trans fats. The risks are significant. They're known and recognized by doctors, in, international medical organizations, governments. They have no nutritional benefit to food. So, say, so banning them is is much simpler than banning all unhealthy foods. And many cities and countries have banned trans fats, uh, even where alcohol is served. So what do
0: contemporary post schemes say about trans fats or other foods that are known to
1: be damaging in our diets? So uh, in 2016, Rav Malamed asked whether serving people maracas with oils uh, violates the prohibition of Lefne-Iver. do not place a stumbling block. He asked, should we, should we remove these foods from our kiddushes and our uh, public events? And his answer was that really the, the, that uh, it all depends on how the medical and scientific community approaches these foods and what the consensus is of the majority of experts. And since their position at the time he believed was unclear, it's difficult to determine a halachic position. Um, and it's it's possible he would rule differently today based on the dangers that we that we now know are associated with uh, fat, these fatty foods. There are uh, halakhic authorities who have come out and prohibited uh, unhealthy eating. So Rabbi Dr. Daniel Eisenberg has said that lifestyle modifications are imperative. That eating right, and taking time to exercise. Is not Beetle Torah, uh, nor is visiting with a nutritionist or a dietitian to, to learn how to live a healthy lifestyle. Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky has called overeating a vera. Uh, he says that it's putting yourself in a makom sakana. So the, right now we have a smattering of, uh, of um, uh, halachic opinions that, or, or, or rabbinic rabbinic. Uh, opinions that would say unhealthy eating is absolutely categorically prohibited but just just a few
0: looking at ourselves as a community granted each home is different and each community is different but what are your current thoughts regarding what can be done in general to combat the unhealthy eating habits
1: that we've talked about So I think this is something that we we're not we're very we're not really even cognizant of and that slowly we are going to become more and more aware of and people are going to talk about more in the uh, in the religious world. Jamie Geller, for example, the, um, the founder of JamieGeller.com and the website that has pro, you know a, a huge number of kosher recipes, has uh called, called, called to act called people to action, asking them to focus on the quality of food over the quantity of food, and suggesting that maybe we can revamp our, our Bubbies recipes, the traditional Jewish food recipes to make them more healthful. Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, uh, the rab of the Boca Raton Synagogue, has actually uh, written about this topic. And he he calls people, he, he actually um, writes that we should approach what we eat uh, and the health impact of what we eat with the same mindfulness that we approach the kashrut of what we eat. And he suggests that we cut down on the number of courses that we serve, uh, that we serve fewer fewer dishes, which will reduce the burden, the financial burden of uh, preparing such extensive meals and the emotional stress of shopping for all of this food and preparing the food. Uh, He suggests serving buffet so that we don't just eat mindlessly, but we get up in the middle of the meal to take more food if we want it. And when we're done eating to bench, uh, and if we want to socialize with our friends or family, to move away from the table uh, and sit in the living room, perhaps, and just you know enjoy each other's company without eating. And really, the question is, you know, do we do we make these changes? For, but there are two approaches. Either we make these changes in our home and from our home, the changes kind of emanate out into the community or we make the changes in the as a community and then start to implement them into our home. Either way, um, it's it's uh, important to start to think about what we're eating, what we're serving uh, to, to address this problem.
0: Yeah, I like those things that um, that you just mentioned, because. Um, There's also flexibility in them. They allow for differences in personal style. They're not saying never serve this or never serve that. They're saying, look at what you're doing and try to make it more healthy and make it more mindful.
1: Correct. Correct. Um, And uh, and I saw another uh, halachic article uh, also by Rabbi Dr. Uh, Rafael Halkauer, where he exhorts rabbinic authorities to take a stand on unhealthy eating, to come out and say that behavior leading to obesity is not just irresponsible, but a violation of halacha. And if they're not willing to go that far, then to at least ban certain unhealthy foods like trans fats, uh, at least above a certain level. And if they're not willing to do that, then then think about what we can do as a community uh, by limiting, trans fats and unhealthy foods at communal events. Uh, so really something to think about for us as as individuals and and as a and as a larger as a larger community.
0: Community. It uh, yeah.
1: talks yeah. about ethical hashers, which I have been added to products that certify that the workers in the factory that produce these products have have been treated properly, and suggest maybe we need to have nutritional hashers that certify the healthfulness of what we're eating, and that's not a new concept. Already back in 2001, in an article on preventative medicine in the Journal of Halacha and Contemporary Society, the authors talk about uh, the importance of checking nutrition facts, and that if the norm is to eat low fat, uh, becomes to eat low fat, low cholesterol foods that not only would halacha require us to look for kosher certification, but also to look at the nutrition facts.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Which makes a lot of sense because as you said, there, there could be a case made for that eating trans fats actually is a sore. Um, but even if it's not in the category of asur and lutar, right? Prohibited or permitted, it still has to goes back to our values and where we choose to, put our energy and make our efforts. And, you know, I happen to live in a place where I really need to go to very little effort to find kosher food. But some people live in in areas where they have to work very hard to find kosher food and then they have to decide how important it is to them to find that kosher food or not. And maybe we should look at, just like you were just saying, maybe we should be looking at health more like that. If it's important enough to me, I'll make more of an effort to read the labels, to check, I'm thinking especially when you talked about the community level of uh, the the unsuspecting consumers of the food, you know, things that are given out in Ghanim and in schools and in community events where you don't even have the opportunity to check the labels. You might not know what you're eating. So wouldn't that be uh, perhaps really significant to change the standard um, on that level so that people could trust that when they were being served food, it was uh, meeting a higher a higher um, health standard and not just a kosher standard. Uh, That's a really interesting way to look at it. So we have traveled a long way in this conversation. We started with definitions regarding heart health and heart attacks, especially in women. From there, we looked at risk factors, focusing in on the modifiable risk factor of nutrition and healthy versus unhealthy eating. We then used the halachic process on the topic of smoking to learn about possible halachic attitudes towards unhealthy eating, and most specifically trans fats. And hopefully we can come away from this conversation with the motivation and education to be proactive and informed in our decisions regarding nutrition and lifestyle. Um, Do you have um, ideas or thoughts to share with us before we wrap up this topic?
1: So um, I think that Halacha, that smoking is really, Halacha's approach to smoking is uh, a paradigm for how it might approach unhealthy eating, Um, and even though only a few rabbinic authorities have prohibited unhealthy eating, uh, their position will likely, I suspect, evolve given the growing body of evidence confirming the dangers of unhealthy eating. Uh, and so I think that, you know, stay tuned and uh, we'll see where, where this all where this all brings us. And perhaps we are on the cusp of uh, of halachic evolution, uh, just as just as we were in the 70s, 80s, 90s, as more and more halachic authorities began to understand the dangers of smoking. I would like to um Make sure that we emphasize two. Uh, well, a, a very the to, in my mind the um, most important message from today, which is to empower women and, and and our listeners to number one take steps to reduce the risks of uh, heart disease, but also to empower them to act uh, if they have symptoms and to not sit at home with. Uh, the symptoms and not wait it out and not say, you know what, I'll go to sleep, but I'll see what happens in the morning because that really can make the difference between life and death. Wow.
0: Really important. And going back to uh, something that we said in the beginning, that our goal is to try to give information, to encourage people to be proactive and in seeking information, and in finding people that can guide you, medical professionals, uh, people that you can talk with about uh, your heart, heart health, risk factors, nutrition, and that everybody is in a position where they can always take a step towards um, intentionality, being more mindful about what we eat, and um, and how much we eat, and to remind us all that this isn't It's not a topic that's all or nothing, it's not black and white, Um, we can do the best we can, we can find information, we can surround ourselves with support systems, and we can always take steps in a positive and healthy direction, and again, we're not here from a place of judgment in any way, shape, or form, and we're also encouraging moderation. Extremes, in general, are usually um, not a healthy way to go so we 're encouraging moderation we 're encouraging mindfulness we 're encouraging healthful steps and awareness of our of our habits of our nutrition, and as Sharon so importantly pointed out to us, awareness of our actual risk factors, our heart health, warning signs when to seek help um, so that we can really be our best advocates and keep ourselves on a healthy path and In doing this podcast today we 've also been striving for moderation. Um, to try to give a balanced uh, presentation of things and we hope that people will come away from this feeling encouraged and empowered to um, to be as healthy as they can and and establish good healthy habits that that make us feel great and give us lots of positive energy to continue doing amazing things in our lives. So thank you very much, Sharon, for uh, enlightening us on this extremely broad and really important topic. Uh, I look forward to continuing possibly other topics that are related, exercise and, uh, and other important things like that. And um, good to know there's always more to talk about.
1: Always more. Thank you,
0: <laughs> so thank you to all our listeners, and we look forward to seeing you next time.
1: You've been listening to Medical Matters Insights into Current Issues in Health and Halacha with Dr. Sharon Galper-Grossman and Hannah Evanchen. This podcast is an Eden Center production. To learn more about our work, check out our website at www.theedincenter.com.